Welcome to the 249th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of Puerto Rico and the pandemic with neuroscientist and science policy advisor, Daniel Colon Ramos. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest it's a quick programming note i want to once again uh, express my sincere thanks to united states representative of the georgia fifth district nikima williams who was my guest on monday tremendous discussion uh, and i hope you'll check that one out on the COVID calls archive as of today, March 30th, 2021, there are 2,794,174 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 550,071. In Puerto Rico, with a population of 3.2 million, the death toll is 2,112. Just as a frame of reference, the state of Iowa with the same population has a death toll of 5,729. And in fact, nine states, the United States with smaller populations than Puerto Rico have had more deaths from COVID-19. The way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. The headline is family of teen who died in Vieques with no hospital since hurricane sues Puerto Rico officials. This was written by Nicole Acevedo and appeared in NBC News February 2nd, 2021. The family of a teenager whose death was blamed on the lack of a functioning hospital and life-saving medical equipment in Vieques, Puerto Rico, is suing the U.S. territory's government for violation of human and civil rights. Hidalis Moreno Ventura, age 13, died last year after suffering flu-like symptoms while living in Vieques, a smaller island off the coast of Puerto Rico. Vieques has not had a functioning hospital since the facility was destroyed during Hurricane Maria more than three years ago. Emergency funds to rebuild the small island's only hospital were approved two weeks before Hidalis' death, but it still hasn't been rebuilt. Family of Heidelis Moreno Ventura has gone to court seeking justice for Heidelis. Linda Bakil, the family's attorney, told NBC News in a statement, for them, this simply means making sure that no other family has to experience the loss of a child due to failure to provide adequate medical services in Vieques, an island municipality of about 9,000 people. Jessica Moraima Ventura Perez, Heidelis' mother, has been demanding accountability for her daughter's death from government officials, as well as administrators of health services at the local and federal levels, saying that her daughter will not die in vain. They all owe us an explanation and swift action to make sure more people don't die due to the lack of basic health services 
on this island of United States citizens who've waited three years to receive word of what is going to happen to them when lives are at stake, Ventura Perez said in a statement when she joined Representative Nydia Velasquez, Democrat from New York, as her guest for last year's State of the Union address. Velasquez, who was Puerto Rican, pressed the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, for months to release aid for Vieques to rebuild its hospital following the devastating September 2017 hurricane. The family of Jairlis Moreno Ventura have been through a tremendous amount of pain and their right to claim that the medical services available to Jairlis were terribly inadequate and had they been better, the outcome for their daughter could have been different. The daughter was admitted to the hospital with what were reported as flu-like symptoms. Velasquez told NBC News in a statement. Then FEMA Administrator Pete Gaynor said last summer that the funding process for the hospital is still underway and they will continue to work with local officials on the project. In the meantime, they will continue to provide funding to keep a $4 million temporary hospital running. When Hurricane Maria destroyed Vieques' hospital facilities, residents had to go to makeshift tents set up in the building's parking lot to receive services. They later moved into Vieques' only shelter, a facility meant to house people during hurricanes or other natural disasters. My daughter fought for her life for over five hours. The least I can do for her is fight for us to have access to a decent health system, Ventura Perez previously told NBC News. Maybe if someone else would have fought for us to have a hospital, my daughter would be here with us today, she said at the time, adding that her daughter dreamed of growing up to join the army like her father, an Iraq war veteran. Their demand for compensation makes the human suffering concrete. The lawsuit is just one way the family is expressing their quest for justice, said their attorney. Initial estimates suggested it would take $70 million to rebuild Vieques' hospital, but Puerto Rican authorities lowered that estimate to $44 million after conducting a more detailed analysis, said Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism. But FEMA agreed to only cover $39 million of the costs while the remaining amount must be covered by the Puerto Rican government, which plans to use funds assigned to the island by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Okay, I'd like to introduce my guest for today. Daniel Alfonso Colon-Ramos is the McConnell Duberg Professor of Neuroscience and Cell Biology at Yale University's School of Medicine, where his lab studies the cell biology of the synapse during development and learning. Daniel was born and raised in Puerto Rico. He completed his bachelor's degree at Harvard University, his PhD in the lab of Dr. Sally Kornbluth at Duke University, and was a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Dr. Kang Shen at Stanford. He's also the founder of the nonprofit organization Ciencia Puerto Rico, a collaborative network for people interested in science and Puerto Rico. In 2020, he was named to the National Academy of Medicine. Daniel Colon Ramos, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thank you for having me in the show. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic situation is there today. Maybe tell us about the vaccination situation too. Sure. So, you know, now that that uh, the world is um, virtual, I kind of live in multiple places. I'm physically in New Haven, Connecticut, but literally 
uh, about 10 minutes ago, I hung up on a phone call that I had with the Scientific Coalition in Puerto Rico, which is the organization that was set up by the current governor, Pedro Pierluisi, to advise him on science policy related matters as they have to do with COVID and other health issues in Puerto Rico. So I feel that for the past uh, year, I have been living in a virtual platform, <laughs> moving somewhere between uh, where I am physically. I have barely traveled, as most people uh, that haven't moved much. Uh, I have been mostly in New Haven, Connecticut, but I've been spending a lot of my time in, in virtual platforms or um, telephone calls or Zoom meetings in Puerto Rico. Can you give us a bit of an update on what the situation is is looking like in Puerto Rico? It's fascinating you describe you sort of self, yourself sort of spread between these two worlds, even though you never leave your office. It's an uncanny experience. <laughs> right. uh, give us a little bit of a sense of how things are looking there on the yes. island. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Puerto Rico just announced that they have administered over a million uh, vaccine doses, which is, uh, is a significant accomplishment uh, for the island. It it Actually, it's an archipelago, and some of the areas, including Vieques, which we were talking about, is now the population there uh, is now fully vaccinated. So, the population of Vieques and Culero, which are two municipalities that are part of the archipelago of Puerto Rico, are fully vaccinated. They have about uh, 60%, 60 or 70% of people 65 and older have received uh, both doses of the vaccines, and it's starting to show in the mortality rates for those populations. For example, when we did the projections for most of the pandemic regarding the, uh, the positive cases and out of how many positive cases Puerto Rico had, how many people we, we will expect to die, uh, the calculations that for most of the pandemic show that out of every 100 positive cases, uh, you will expect about two of those to pass away. Now, uh, the numbers in Puerto Rico reflect that out of 100 positive cases, one of them passes away. So that's a reduction of 50 percent, So, which is pretty significant. And it's, it's uh, good news. Things are moving in the right direction in that sense. On the other hand, most of the discussion that we had today in the scientific coalition had to do with the fact that it's Holy Week in Puerto Rico. It's a predominantly Catholic country where the so-called uh, spring break, it, it's, it's now. There are a lot of visitors right now. A lot of people, you know, people are tired of the pandemic. They're going out of vacation and the cases are rising. So they're rising as we're entering Holy Week. And that we're concerned about what that will mean for the um, for the rates of positivity cases, for the hospitalizations and for the deaths in the upcoming weeks. What about there in, in New Haven? How's it looking there? You know, it's it's um, similar trends. I think Connecticut has had a different uh, vaccination strategy. Like Puerto Rico, I think, focus more around professions like uh, healthcare professionals. I think Connecticut started similarly, but then Puerto Rico continued on to, with, um, you know, like uh, first responders, like people that are in charge of all, of all the... Um, uh, the, the the ports and um, in, like they were concerned about the the food chain, the, the resources, like resources in the island. 
in Connecticut, they, the vaccination strategy uh, shifted to focus more around ages. So I think Connecticut is, just started last week vaccinating people 45 and older. And the vaccinations in Connecticut are going really well. Uh, the cases in Connecticut, fluctuate Connecticut is, you know, between Massachusetts, Boston, and New York. So it's really part of the metropolitan corridor that goes from Boston to Washington, D.C. So right. although people haven't been moving as much as they normally would move in that corridor, there's still a lot of movement and a lot of activity, and that actually affects the fluctuations and the cases in Connecticut. So... Uh, we're gonna. I have so many questions for you today, but I'd like to start actually just getting a kind of a grounding in your, and your science. And um, please talk to me like a person who wished he'd done better in biology <laughs> in his studies. But I've tried to read up, and and you have some tremendous introductory videos on your website that really um, go some distance to explaining the work you're doing. I wonder if you wouldn't give us a little bit of an explainer of what goes on in your lab. Absolutely. So I'm a neuroscientist. So I study how the brain forms, how it functions. And the way that I explain my research is that I tell people that when they think about a memory, a memory that makes them who they are, like, you know, you know, the image of your mom's face or your grandparents or your first, your first kiss, like something intimate that makes you who you are. I'm interested in understanding what that is <laughs> in terms of uh, physical entities like what does that what does that represent in terms of I mean we're organic beings in terms of um, cells in terms of molecules and we we don't study that in in humans although we like to think about memories as as an experience that is exclusively human the truth is that most animals have memories they form memories um, they remember things they associate things and in my lab, we use a worm. It's a tiny nematode. It's about a millimeter in length. That's about the size of a comma in a sentence. It lives commonly in the soil. The name in Latin is C. elegans. But what it is, is a, it's a tiny worm for which science has actually mapped all of the nervous system. So we know where all the cells are. We know where the connections are. We know what behaviors they control. And I study two things, uh, or my group studies. I have a group that I lead that are uh, 20 people, uh, students and postdocs and fellow professional scientists. They are interested in two main questions. One of them is, how is it that these connections are established? Like how the connections that, that wire together the system that enables the animal to form a perception of the world. And just to put that into context, in a healthy human brain, we have about a hundred billion cells that are called neurons that are need to be connected properly for us to have this conversation, for example, for us to be able to process sensory information, for us to be able to remember. When that doesn't happen properly, you have neurological diseases, you have neurodevelopmental diseases. Mm -hmm. So those hundred billion neurons, they form a hundred trillion connections with each other. Mm -hmm much like cables in a computer need to connect so that when you press the letter T in your keyboard, you can see the letter T in your monitor. These neurons need to connect so that when your eyes receive you know, light stimuli, you can actually interpret it in, in the correct fashion, in the proper fashion. And that happens through 100 trillion connections. And to put that number, that number into context, that means that in, in a single healthy human brain, you have more connections than you have stars in the Milky Way. Mm. So that it's, it's a massive number. And we study in my lab for this nematode, it doesn't have a hundred trillion synaptic connections, but it has 
connections that also happen through the same uh, instructions that our own brains use. And we elucidate what those instructions are, and we try to understand how this orchestrated dance of these connections forming during development as the animal is, is developing as an embryo, how, how is it coming to be? That's one. And the second question that we study is, those connections form, and then it enables the animal to perceive the world, but they change also. They change based on the experiences of the animal, and that's what allows the animal to form memories. How are those connections changing, and how are those changes related to the to this thing that we know as a memory. As a, for example, in the case of these nematodes, they can remember to, uh, you can feed them at a certain temperature and they can remember the temperature at which they were fed. And when putting a gradient of temperature, they'll move to that preferred temperature. So what is that? What is temperature for the brain? How does it remember it? How does it know where to go? Those are the kind of questions that we study. Is memory where you started? I mean, is, and, and no, animal behavior no. and memory, how you, I'm always interested to talk to scientists about where their, what their first questions were that got them into the into the lab. You know, I, I mean, at a high level, yes, I had questions. You know, when I was a child, that were related to mysteries, like you know, what's a memory? I would, I didn't have the preparation to be able to verbalize them the way that I verbalize them now. They were just kind of questions that I thought that somebody will know the answer. Like, I mean, what's a memory? I, you will think that somebody will have figured that out by now. But the truth is that for the most important questions. Uh, we we lack answers. That's that's why they're scientists. Like I, it surprised me when I was finishing college and I started, like you know, working in a lab and preparing to go to graduate school to get my PhD and later getting my PhD in graduate school. That most of what you do as a scientist is formulating questions because there's so many questions that lack answers that are so important. So. The kind of questions that I asked myself when I was a child growing up in Puerto Rico are, I mean, there are these plants, for example, I mean, Puerto Rico is a, it's a tropical country, so there are a lot of uh, beautiful examples from, you know, from the tropics that, that will captivate my imagination. There are these plants that we call moribibi in, in the, the scientific name of the plant is Mimosa pudica. And it's essentially, it's really a weed, it grows everywhere. But if you touch it, it actually, um, the plant senses it and it closes its leaves as to, it, it, all of a sudden it looks from like a really green plant to something that's like dry and dying. And it's thought that they do that to avoid them being grazed by the cows because they kind of shrivel down. And so, but as a child, I will look at that and, and I will think, well, most people say that plants don't feel, but here I am touching this plant and it's actually moving and closing and responding to me touching them. Like, what does that mean that they don't feel? Like, is this plant feeling the same way that I'm feeling? Or, or how is this plant sensing that I just touched that I'm able to move all its leaves very fast to kind of hide itself? Hmm. And I, I had questions like that, but my, my first research projects uh, were projects in which I I was um, a little bit uh, playing with with my interest in science, but also my identity as a Puerto Rican. So I did a lot of work early on in college and even before college in high school about the use of medicinal plants. And um, I couldn't verbalize it the way I'm gonna verbalize it now back then, but I think what I was doing those interests were my response to the fact that whenever I read about scientific discoveries and I read about scientific knowledge, there were always examples that came from elsewhere. And 
And I think I subconsciously mm. I was thinking there's 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 a wealth of knowledge that hasn't been there's a wealth of knowledge and capacity and and um, and possibilities that just uh, that are not acknowledged in the scientific literature. It's mm. I almost felt like there were whole communities that were ignored, including my community, mm. by science. And I think the way that I responded to that was by um, using my scientific training early on, which was very green, by the way, like I was just starting to train, to to try to go to 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 communities that that I felt an affiliation to, mm. and and um, and study their 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 scientific knowledge, what I perceive as their scientific knowledge, which was which was in in that context, the use of medicinal plants, which is what they had available um, through, you know, th many years of trial and errors and, and, and validating that, that um, or at least examining the use of those medicinal plants and the value that has for humanity. So you're describing um, an approach, I guess we would call you know, looking at traditional medicine or indigenous medical practices and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because I'm fascinated by your description that you started with what was around you. Of course, that's the logical thing you're going to do. And finding a mismatch between that and what you're seeing in the so-called scientific literature that's right. out there. But then when you talk to people and, and engage those conversations, what were those like? And how did you begin to sort of develop a picture that there's different ways of approaching knowledge making in the world? Well, when I started talking to my professors, like I, I had graduated from high school and I went to Harvard and I was talking to them and, you know, there, I saw it that in my classes, all of the examples or many of the examples came, you know, it didn't matter from paleontology to botany to it didn't matter. Most, a lot of the examples kind of either came from North America, Europe, maybe a little bit like Australia, but or, or there was kind of like this kind of what what I sense as a colonial notion to knowledge ex extraction. Like they, like like it was somebody from those communities going somewhere else to extract knowledge. But it wasn't like I couldn't. I I, I didn't see myself for sure represented in the process of knowledge production, or people like me. And I also didn't see other groups represented. It wasn't like there were collaborators in Africa also working with, with it, it was very kind of like top down, like this is, these are the knowledge centers and, and, um, and either the knowledge is produced in these places or we go there and we figure it out. That, that's, that was kind of how I perceived that. I couldn't say it then that way, but that's how I perceived it. Yet I had grown up in community. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico, so I knew that there was there was knowledge there, and I knew that people at Harvard were no smarter than the people that I grew up with in Puerto Rico. They just had more opportunities. So I was thinking, you know, these knowledge centers, as wonderful as they are, because it was an amazing experience to, to have been educated at a resource and privileged place like Harvard, but as as resources as they are, they're missing a lot if they don't acknowledge that, that if centers like that don't acknowledge that there are on other knowledge bases that that um, 
that have also been in in other ways. I'm not I'm not I'm not validating all ways of knowledge formation. I, I do okay. think I do believe in the scientific method, but at the same time, I think that there there are worlds of knowledge that the scientific method it is well served by examining in other parts of the world. That's what I was kind of really feeling at that point. I couldn't verbalize it the way I'm verbalizing it today, but that's how, what I was feeling. And and the way that that uh, manifested itself is that I started seeking out opportunities while most of my um, classmates were actually spending their summers staying in the medical school at Harvard and working in a lab. That, that kind of felt distant to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... Mm-hmm. I started seeking out opportunities to go to Honduras or to go to Panama. And, and there I worked, for example, in Panama, I collaborated with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute and I visited indigenous communities in the you know, remote areas of the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. And I will interview them for the use of medicinal plants. And you know, it was fascinating because you could see, I did that study in Honduras and in Panama, which, which are... Um, you know, very different communities of, of, of indigenous groups that don't have right. a lot of communication between them, yet they were using similar plants. So I started wondering about the, you know, biomedical properties that those plants could have and, uh, you know, who had examined them and what the world was missing by not paying attention to that type of knowledge. On the other hand, what happened to me during those experiences is that I also became very aware that while I was learning a lot, I wasn't contributing anything to that, new, to that knowledge. So while I had mm-hmm. kind of validated my hypothesis that there was a lot of knowledge there, I wasn't prepared enough to be able to add value to the knowledge that was being shared with me by, the, by those indigenous groups. And that's what motivated me then to continue my education and go to grad school. Just a reminder to everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, I'm talking with Daniel Colon Ramos today about his work as a neuroscientist. And we're going to turn our conversation now to also his work as a science advisor in Puerto Rico. And I think it attaches very well to what you were just saying. This concept, um, as you became aware that there's tremendous value in indigenous um, medical practices, for example, or medicinal plants. But then you, you saw yourself as a person who was maybe caught up a bit in this extraction process. Mm-hmm. But now you really you really turned your attention to, I don't know if giving back is the right way, because I think it's much more of a relationship than that. But you're deeply involved in science policy formation in Puerto Rico, and even more so through the pandemic. So let's talk about that a little bit, what that's been like. And, I, and one thing to just maybe start with, I noted early in the pandemic, you were all over the news discussing um, some of the issues that were going on with testing there in Puerto Rico and some gaps that you saw that you thought really needed to be addressed. Let's start with that. Well, yes. I maybe, maybe to start with that, we have to start like 15 years ago when I was a postdoc at Stanford. I'm a, and I, I'm a I historian. Had... Let's do that. Let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started, I started an organization. It's actually the 50th year uh, anniversary this, this year of this organization called Ciencia Puerto Rico. 
And I, I was a postdoc at Stanford, and I started wondering if there were other scientists that, or other Puerto Ricans or whatever, like anybody that was interested in science in Puerto Rico. I broadly defined it as an interest. People interested in science in Puerto Rico, of course. Most people that are going to be interested in science in Puerto Rico are going to be Puerto Rican scientists, but it doesn't have to be. It can be scientists from elsewhere. It can be Puerto Ricans that are not scientists and, and, and all sorts of intersections of identities in that. And so I defined it like that, and I... Uh, put together with an undergrad at, at Stanford at that time a website and we just put it online and asked people that were interested in those, to in those topics to self-identify. And what happened afterwards was wonderful, which is that um, I was expecting maybe 20 to 30 people to register and there were within a few weeks, hundreds of people registered and today has over 15,000 members. So spread out around the world. But the, the importance of that organization is in the context of your question, is that at that time, I started realizing that a lot of ideas or feelings or experiences that I felt that were unique to, to me because I had not had a chance to compare notes with other people that had grown up in Puerto Rico and were scientists, were actually um, shared experiences. And those included, uh, an awareness about the lack of, for example, ex contextualized um, examples of how science works and contextualized to the reality of Puerto Rico. And just to give you an example, like, I mean, it's while it's true that scientific concepts are universal, how we explain those concepts and contextualize them to a community, that's not universal. So, um, you know, you can explain, I, actually, as a child growing up in Puerto Rico, I remember examples of seed dispersal and the, are the books that we used in school came uh, translated. They were mostly from the Northeast. And the examples that they used were of maple trees, which is a beautiful example of seed dispersal with these helicopter-shaped seeds. But the first time that I saw a maple seed in my life, I was 17. <laughs> and the examples I was memorizing, I was, I was memorizing when I was about eight. I had never seen a maple tree. I mean, to me, you might have as well made up the example. And it's not, it's not that you shouldn't use examples from elsewhere. It's that if you only use examples from elsewhere, you're communicating to the student that science is not context relevant. And of course, there are amazing examples of seed dispersal in Puerto Rico because it's a tropical country. So you have a ton of really relevant examples, but they were not used. So that, that, that's just one example about how that works. But we started kind of comparing notes as scientists. And another thing that we noticed besides the educational part was the lack of integration of science in the decision-making processes in Puerto Rico. Now, that was already floating in the air in that community of thousands of scientists. That, that's an online community. And when, when the hurricane hits, the hurricane in 2017, you have to remember that the pandemic, to understand the pandemic in Puerto Rico, you have to understand the context in which it happens. And it happened after a hurricane, a mega hurricane, actually two of them. It happened after a governor was ousted for the first time in Puerto Rican history, and it happened after earthquakes. I actually, the last time I was physically in Puerto Rico, I go to Puerto Rico like three or four times a year, but I haven't been there since January of last year of, of 2020. That day, January 7th of 2020, I, me and my family woke up. Uh, we were supposed to fly out of Puerto Rico at 11 in the morning. We woke up at five because we were woken up by the house shaking. We left Puerto Rico uh, as there were a, a bunch of earthquakes happening. And 
and that that context is important because what was happening both during the hurricanes and the earthquakes and all the other things that were going on the bankruptcy the governor austin is that the scientific community through this network was asking itself what you know what is our role like what are, it's really hard to focus i don't know mm. how to explain it it's a little bit like in the us trying to focus on your research after the twin towers came down or something like right. that. you know it's just like you just you start wondering what am i doing like how right. how can i give back to my community like you know you have your parents there your siblings your cousins your aunts and uncles your grandparents and you start it, it, it's you start wondering as a scientist as much as you love what you do you start wondering well what how can i how can i help and in the context of the hurricane there was a a database that was created for scientists to help each other and there were students that came over to labs stateside and continued their training and, and nice activities like that but the truth was that you know there were also thousands of people that were dying because they couldn't get dialysis or uh insulin uh the healthcare system collapsed and we felt helpless like we were not first responders we felt helpless um i was involved in initiatives here in the hospital in the Yale New Haven Hospital to send um, thousands of pounds of medications to Puerto Rico, but still you felt like, you know, what else can I do? Then the pandemic rolls around. Mm. And by the time the pandemic rolled around, then it was clear what needed to be done. And it was clear what needed to be done for two reasons. One of them is that the pandemic, unlike the other disasters, where it wasn't a disaster that it happened. Like for example, in the earthquake, when it was happening, you, it's very hard to start a conversation as a scientist on codes. Like you could have, you know, we had had scientists talking about an earthquake happening in Puerto Rico for years. But once the earthquake is happening, it's not the time for you to say, hey, as a scientist, I told you this was going to happen. Like it's, yeah, you know, right. stone deaf. Right. But, but in the pandemic, you have a, an opportunity of saying this is going to happen. If we don't do this, this is going to happen. These are so you can look forward and start kind of projecting, and then people start listening to you because there's value to that, which is not a it's not it's not like a forensic value or something that just happened. It's something right. that helps people prepare. That's one. And the second thing that happened was that the the statements in March of 2020, a year ago in Puerto Rico about the pandemic by the public health officials at the time. Uh, it was clear that not only were they unprepared, they were in denial. They were essentially saying things that were patently false. Like um, they were, for example, saying things that that the pandemic wasn't going to make it to Puerto Rico because there were no direct flights between Puerto Rico and China. That's that's right. like like a, like a statement made by right. one of the public health officials, or that people didn't need to worry about the pandemic because it wasn't that contagious. So if somebody were to sneeze in a room that you were in and you were to touch where they sneezed, it, it, it didn't matter because once you had touched the surface, it wasn't as contagious. And as scientists, like the, you know, we started communicating with each other through this network and, and decided, well, we have to do something about it. And so it happens, we're talking about my research preparation early on. So it happens that the techniques that are used for testing for the virus. We, we're not a virology lab, but mm -hmm. the techniques that are used, which are um, molecular techniques, are very similar to techniques that I use in my lab and techniques yeah. that I'm familiarized with and I knew that happened in Puerto Rico. So I knew that Puerto Rico had the capacity to do that. Thank you for 
for explaining that and, and I mean this organization Ciencia Puerto Rico this network that you're describing I mean just to follow up one one bit on that is is most of that would you describe part of the sort of diaspora community and most of the people who are engaged in that are not in Puerto Rico itself they're dispersed or what's the balance there because I'm, I'm picturing what you're describing this network comes in it I mean, not that different from the sort of neural network you were describing earlier. All right. of a sudden, it starts firing. That's right. And I'm picturing a world rather than just Puerto Rico or Puerto Rico and New York or Puerto Rico and New Haven. Absolutely. And, and not only that, but there, you know, our identities are intersectional. So, you know, this network is it's a network of, of scientists that have a link to Puerto Rico. So a lot of, I will say that the majority of them, if you compare all territories in the world, the majority of them are in Puerto Rico, but, but a, a good amount, I think almost almost half of them are outside of Puerto Rico. It's just spread out in many places mm. outside of Puerto Rico. So, but not only that, like all of those people have their own networks. So for example, in my case, just to, just to bring it to my own experience, in January last year, I was talking to my postdoc, who's now a professor at Fulan University in Shanghai. And I'm talking to him about the, the lockdowns that are happening in Shanghai. So I, I know what's coming up. When, when Italy is shutting down, I have colleagues there. I'm talking to them. I'm talking to colleagues in Germany. I know what's coming up. Like, I know what's happening in Spain. And I, so the scientific, like, there's, there's kind of this community. It's not of which our network is part of, but it's also a scientific community that's global that was exchanging information. And, and while the politicians were not up to speed everywhere, the scientists were. And, and the scientists were exchanging information saying, this is coming, this is happening, this is how we need to prepare for it. And at different places, politicians were, uh, we see it in the, now in the, in, the, in the consequences of the pandemic, but politicians were either listening to the science, scientists or no. I, at that time, I remember having a conversation with a colleague saying, you know, it's interesting because this pandemic, you know, we usually think about politics globally breaking across lines of like liberal and conservative and, and that type right. of axis. And all of a sudden there was a new axis I had never seen, which is kind of like how much the government listened to science, regardless mm -hmm. of if it was an authoritarian government or a democracy or liberal or a socialist or capitalist, it didn't matter. Like how much it listened to science and how, how, how much it did not. And you had, you know, liberal governments like Lopez Obrador and conservative governments like Donald Trump having the same problems because yeah. of how they didn't listen to the scientists. That's uh, an amazing way to sort of to sort of break that down. And, and you were saying earlier that, um, you know, some of what you were hearing was very distressing coming out of public health um, in Puerto Rico or maybe the political side of public health. But the statistics that I read at the top tell a, a story well, uh, that compared to other absolutely, states, absolutely, yeah. Something changed as you went into the summer. Break that down for us. So, so the scientific community, you know, so, so early March, actually February and early March, the government is it's in denial. But then what happened was that, and now you have to remember, this is this is a country that had just, I actually was still going through earthquakes. There were still earthquakes going on. There were scandals having to do with supplies that were hidden during the earthquakes. The press was on top of the administration because of how they had uh, mismanaged the situation with the earthquakes. When the pandemic starts, like, you know, the whole society is sensitized, the scientific community having to do with Puerto Rico is sensitized. And there was kind of like 
an organic alliance that was formed between the scientists and the press. Like the scientists started posting information in social media and the press started reaching out to the scientists and interviewing them. And that created huge political pressure. All of a sudden you had the, the public listening to the scientists and not trusting the government. And then something fascinating happened. There was like a 180 like change in terms of policy where they went from this is never happening here to all, then the governor, the governor at that time, uh, Wanda Vasquez, convened, to my knowledge, for the first time, an advisory group to advise her on scientific matters. And it was an advisory group composed of, of primarily uh, people in the healthcare sector. They were primarily uh, MDs or epidemiologists. So it was called the Medical Task Force. And they started meeting with her and advising her, and they advised her to shut down the country. And she was the first jurisdiction in the U.S. that completely shut down uh, Puerto wow. Rico. So that essentially stopped the virus on its tracks. And Puerto Rico had amazing numbers. Actually, the numbers of Puerto Rico up until like the end of June of 2020 were similar to New Zealand. And because it's an island, it actually mm-hmm. you know could control them very well. Then what happened after that was kind of the pendulum swung the other way. And they they had not established yet the, the testing, the contact tracing. There were a lot of deficiencies in the public health department that needed to be compensated for the data analysis systems. And they didn't, they didn't use the opportunity during those early months where they had shut down to establish them. So when July comes around, we have an idea that the numbers are good and they use that to, for like, broad reopenings, which unfortunately coincide with the primaries. So there was there was an election that was happening. They were trying to garner the favor of of you know the populace and they were, you know, and that that most of the deaths that you mentioned, 2000 and and, and chunk, happened during that period between I will say August of 2020 and December of 2020. Okay. I hadn't realized that, or I had forgotten that Puerto Rico was the first to go into that, into that lockdown. And of course, for any uh, governor to do that, to take aggressive action in the spring and summer, incurred the wrath of the Trump administration. And and I, you know, those politics, the tensions. It's, and I really like how you talked about, you know, the sort of background and Hurricane Maria and the earthquakes. So I mean, it's. It's underselling it to say that the relationship between Puerto Rico and the Trump administration has been tense since Hurricane Maria. But I wonder, maybe just say a little bit about about that that tension, which speaks to a broader tension about the relationship between Puerto Rico and the mainland, the mainland states, which is always sort of there in the background, not easy to resolve, but really heightened. And then the pandemic turns it all up a notch again. Seems almost an impossible political situation. Yeah, well, uh, one has to first understand that Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It's considered by many a colony. Um, it's under. It's actually bankrupt right now. It's under a fiscal control board that wasn't elected by the people of Puerto Rico. It was actually established uh, by the uh, U.S. federal government under the administration of Barack Obama. Then this is a problem that that that. Trump exacerbated for sure and made very public, but precedes him. It's a it's a structural problem between between the U.S. and an economy uh, that has been going on since 1898. We are subject to 
um, to the Jones Act, for example, like any any goods that arrive in Puerto Rico, they have to pass through the U.S. first and they have to come in the U.S. mercantile system. Or if they arrive in Puerto Rico first, then then it's going it's much harder to then bring them to the U.S. because of because of the uh, tariffs that are part of that of that system, as opposed to, for example, something that arrives in Florida and then can be driven anywhere in the continental U.S. So uh those structural things have affected the relationship of Puerto Rico and the U.S. for over 100 years, for for better and for worse. In some ways, in ways that have benefited many people, I have benefited from the fact that I, I you know, I could go to Harvard, like, and I could apply to student loans and and things like that. But a lot of people have been um, also um, affected negatively by by that relationship, and there are aspects also of my life that have been affected negatively by that relationship. And when the when that one of the fallouts of that colonial relationship has to do with the you know the structures of power and decision making. When the hurricane happens, then um, there was an expectation that there were a number of federal programs that were gonna um, be implemented to help Puerto Rico. There were disparities in how those fell. You have to remember that these these hurricanes also affected Florida and Texas. Florida and Texas ended up receiving far more resources than Puerto Rico. The resources in Puerto Rico were delayed. There are famous quotes by Donald Trump saying, well, there's a huge ocean between here and Puerto Rico. And, uh, you know, these are these are resources to which the Puerto Ricans contribute. They're part, they're part of the system too. And they, you know, they, you started with a segment about uh, Vieques and the hospital in Vieques. Okay. There's a um, beautiful um, podcast called La Brega from NPR. I put it on the on the chat if you want to um, share it with the audience. But in that podcast, they explain how after the hurricane, there was an experiment that was done. Like Puerto Rico has been used as a it's a place to establish a lot of kind of federal-led experiments to see how they work out before they're rolled out elsewhere. And there was an experiment that was done with FEMA that ended up affecting the establishment of that hospital because it was a, uh, without going into too many details, it was a federal program that had not been tried out elsewhere that had to do with FEMA, in which FEMA was then able for the first time to build better instead of just to replace something that was broken to build better. But it came with a lot of red tape and, um, you know, limitations in a way that we see the consequences now. We are in the middle of a pandemic and Vieques, who was promised a hospital, it's going to be four years now. I mean, maybe even longer because it precedes the hurricane, still doesn't have a hospital and they're... Um, you know, it has real consequences, including this story that you share. I mean, in that sense, and I'm glad you used the, the sort of discussion about and language like colonial relationship that, and this is something that interests me very much, and you were talking about it earlier, that when we see the pandemic breaking out in Puerto Rico, we have to sort of bring into mind the full chain of these previous disasters, which are themselves caught up in this sort of colonial relationship that right. the amount of resources are not the same, the amount of infrastructure is not the same, and maybe attempts to address those structurally through policy, the way you might in California or New York or Florida, has also been lacking. Correct. And, and there's, there, there's also like cultural repercussions to, to that 
structural relationship. Like just to give you an example, uh, one of the statements of the Secretary of Health um, a year ago, the one that I was talking about that that was on denial about the pandemic coming to Puerto Rico. When he was asked if we were prepared, he said, yes, absolutely, we're prepared. The CDC is prepared and the CDC is gonna do the testing for Puerto Rico. The, the CDC wasn't prepared even for, first the CDC is not there to do testing for Puerto Rico. Like I, I was here in Connecticut and Connecticut was setting up its own systems. The Yale University was setting up its own systems, but the mentality when you're a colony, part of the uh, fallout of, of that relationship is you lose a lot of control over the over things that happen in your own territory. And the fallout of that at a cultural level is that it puts you in a passive position. I tell people it, it's a little bit, it feels like you are waiting at the gate in the airport and you know, you're kind of passively waiting for them to tell you when the airplane is going to leave. And they keep on telling you the airplane is delayed 15 minutes, the airplane is delayed 15 minutes. But you don't you don't feel there's anything you can do. Like you're not going to go there and fix the airplane. You're not a pilot. So similarly, like this in these colonial relationships, like as, as they relate to the pandemic, there was this notion that somehow help was going to come from elsewhere. And I, I, Clearly remember actually having conversations with people here at the hospital in the Yale New Haven Hospital, in which I had asked them about the possibility of sending some supplies to Puerto Rico, like masks and surgical masks and simple things like that. And the president of the hospital, who I knew, uh, told me, look, we, we help with the hurricane, but right now this is a pandemic and we have to make sure that we have resources for the people here in New Haven. And that made it clear to me, like everyone is, Everyone has, like, it's a pandemic. Like, people are not, they, they don't have the bandwidth to help you out. You just have to, like, stand on your own two feet. And that's that's a new concept for many people when they come from a structural relationship of power, like like a, like a colony. There was, there was a sense then that we needed to wait for the U.S. to come and somehow establish the test or do the test for us or things like that. And what the scientific community did, and this is something that's kind of ingrained in our training as scientists, is this notion that, you know, when there's a problem, you have to look for a solution. And we're trained to do that. We're trained to like find problems and then look for solutions. And, um, and it, but it took reframing. It took a lot of conversations of reframing, of telling people, no, we, we, no one is going to solve this for us. It did help that a lot of people in Puerto Rico were primed by the experience of the hurricane because that's exactly what had happened in the hurricane. The hurricane people were left waiting and the help never came. But what you're describing has to be seen in the context too of a complete breakdown of emergency management in the United States at the federal level in the crucial early months of the pandemic. So then you might think, okay, well then we could rely on sort of mutual aid state to state, which is what often happens in disasters. But this was an unprecedented sort of experience, at least in over 100 years. Every state's emergency operations center and all municipalities were activated. So to call up Florida and say, how about some help? That's not the way that's going to work. And, you know, we, we, did, we, we, actually, we, we established relationships and collaborations with research centers, including here at Yale. And I remember having a conversation with with um, experts here. And they were saying, why doesn't Puerto Rico, because, you know, in the Lesser Antilles, you have representation of a bunch of European countries that had set up testing and had set up testing much better than the U.S. and successfully. And they were saying, why doesn't Puerto Rico mm. like go and ask help to the Netherlands or France or England, which are represented in the Lesser Antilles? 
And and I, I was, you know, it would have taken me too long to explain to my colleagues, but it's again the colonial relationship. It's this idea that you're gonna there's a metropolis and that's what's gonna provide all the answers. There wasn't even the imagination of mm. of of going right next door and and saying, okay, let's establish a collaboration for testing so we can both get through this because we're actually occupying the same geographical region. I may be hitting the third rail here of Puerto Rican politics, so feel free to not address this question if you don't want to. But it seems to me the context then is, is pretty clear. A successful, not perfect, nothing's been perfect in the pandemic, but a successful public health response after a halting start has got to raise, once again, the questions about Puerto Rican independence or Puerto Rico's status as a territory, should it be a state? Is that part of the discourse there now in a it's, sharper it's way always, than it has it, been? It always is. That, that, that taints every conversation in Puerto Rico. There's nothing yeah. you can say. You, you cannot talk about testing in Puerto Rico without having that commerce. Although, although it, might be, it might be marginally related, there's very little in Puerto Rico that you can talk about mm-hmm. without that becoming uh, the, the main conversation. And I think I, you know, I've reflected about this for many years. Of course, I have my own opinions. But I think just taking a step back, I mean, Puerto Rico was invaded by the U.S. in 1898. And in all the plebiscites that he has had since then in in the decision-making process the u.s hasn't been part of that it hasn't it, it hasn't engaged so there hasn't been a a good faith attempt by congress to try to solve this status issue it, it just hasn't happened yet congress is the one that holds the the um it, it, you know it's, it's the entity that created the problem in the first place and it's the one that holds the power so when people ask me, okay, so what do Puerto Ricans want? I say, you know, you're framing the question wrong because Puerto Ricans, like, you know, what, so what is available? Like, like in order for, like the only choice that Puerto Ricans can really execute on their own is independence. That's the only, that, that's the only thing that they can really do on their own. And that's, that's certainly a choice. And maybe it'll end up, ha- it, it, might, it might be what ends up happening. Mm-hmm. But for all other choices, they need to sit down with the U.S and talk about what that means. What does statehood mean for Puerto Rico? What does a, you know, an, an association like, uh, you know, that you can, you can structure in different ways, having to do with the citizenship, having to do with the coin, having to do with common defense, even as an independent state. And, but as, as long as, as that conversation is not happening and it hasn't happened and it's not happening because of the U.S., then asking Puerto Ricans what they want is like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like asking somebody in prison what they want while they're locked mm-hmm. into the cell. It's like, what do you want? Well, what do you mean? Are you going to let me out? Like, mm. a, a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and talking with Daniel Colon Ramos today. And I want to just sort of let me bring it back to the science for a second and thinking about your own work as a neuroscientist and thinking about sort of the material basis, trying to understand the material basis of memory. And as a historian, I think about disaster memory all the time, but I think of it as a set of cultural practices usually structured by history and, and law. I, I want to ask you this, this question. Um, is, is, I've been really wanting to talk to you about this part of it, which is what is, when you think about disaster memory, is it different from other kinds of memory? Do you think? I mean, is there a sort of biological basis of extreme events and how they might shape memory? Absolutely. I, th- I mean, I think first I'll, I'll start by saying that a lot of our perception is in contrast with what we perceive to be normal. So m- meaning um, we are 
we are our brains are really good at picking up disasters and remembering them. The same way that if you walk into your house and then there's like a pink elephant in the middle of the living room, that's the first thing you're gonna see. So our 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 perception filters out information that we think is normal and all of a sudden focuses on something that's that's um, outstanding or unique or different. That's why the you know that's why history is filled with these specific events that that shape it, right? It doesn't tell you everything that happened. It tells you certain events and then it creates a framework of how we we um, we understand uh, the world events in that context. So, so, so for starters, I want to flag that. And then it, it is true that at an, at an individual level, we're going to, we are more uh, sensitized or more capable of of remembering and sometimes even misremembering um, traumatic events like disasters. We're social animals and we share narratives, we share experiences, we share um, our notions of history and, and those lead to collective memories that we reinforce in each other. So in that sense, we almost work like, uh, like I said, like as as you were saying, a, a supra brain connecting, connecting our brains together, and then there are these kind of emergent, emergent narratives that that come out of, of those cycles of repetition, and, and, um, which are sometimes not coordinated or or smooth. You know, they're like battles about who dominates the narrative and what narrative is going to become the predominant narrative. We've seen that in the U.S. A lot, right? And so, so, so the answer is that uh, that that yes. So I mean, all of those things are at the end of the day they're fundamentally based on biological traits that uh, that we share as humans. I don't want to reduce them to just cells and molecules, but for sure they they influence our capacity to both perceive the world and perceive what history is and create frames and create narratives. There's a great book by uh, E.O. Wilson. It's a little bit dated. I was, I was reading it and it's a little bit um, dated in some of the examples that he uses and the language that he uses, but it's called consilience. And it, mm -hmm. it speaks about this. It speaks about this kind of connection between the biological and, you know, the sociological. It, it, I really like the way you, you describe that. And at the same time, one of the things we worry about is loss of memory, too, that that. The, the way you described is sort of the way the brain's working. You're going to spot something that doesn't fit the pattern or that doesn't sort of fit the flow of information we expect. And that registers a memory. But as we shifted into the sort of sociobiological concept, you mentioned Wilson uh, or politics, there also seems to be a lot of structured forgetting that yeah. goes on. And that brings us back to Puerto Rico. And so I, I frame it this way because I, I really wanted to, excuse me, <clears throat> As a person who's trying to understand this scientifically, but you're also engaged in the politics, you must find yourself sort of constantly toggling back and forth as you're trying to understand memory in these contexts of disaster. Absolutely. I mean, uh, um, to your point, you know, we understand the world in, in our brains through narratives. Like we like to use narratives. They have to make sense. So the reason things stand out to us when they don't make sense is because they don't fit our narrative. But then what comes after that is an intense need to try to make it fit the narrative, like try to make it like 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 re either redefine the narrative, or if if you cannot redefine the narrative, then you ignore the event, and that's when you get into the forgetting. 
And I think, for example, in this in this kind of narrative of American exceptionalism, I think Puerto Rico is a convenient fact to forget. You know, it's it's convenient to forget about the existence of a colony if you don't visualize yourself as a colonizer. Almost up on time in my conversation today with Daniel Colon Ramos. Just one last thing I wanted to get to is is how you think science uh, training might be changing through this time. In your own example, as a, a scientist who also makes time to get involved in the science policy world, it is that now, are you recommending that that's kind of how training should go in science and scientists need no, to be thinking I, about their own place in the world in that, in that sense? Or is this, is this your special approach? I, I, I think scientists are trained to solve problems. And I think that when it comes to policy and when it comes to um, science-related themes that are not necessarily like um, what we call bench side things, like things that I would do in my bench in my lab, the, the process is very similar. So what I tell students that come to my lab or come to graduate school and they're interested in these questions is that I tell them, you know, train to become the best scientist that you can be. And that will give you the tools then to apply that knowledge. It's not, the science is not the technique, it's not the instrument. It's not even necessarily the question that you're addressing. It's the process by which you're addressing that question. And that, that methodology, that process, that way of examining the question of um, asking yourself about other angles, about other narratives that you're ignoring, about trying to see beyond it, and um, breaking it down into solvable units and moving forward, trying to iterate and solve and see your biases and grow in the process of learning and creating knowledge. That, that process of the scientific method is the same, no matter if I'm advising the governor on policies uh, having to do with COVID or if I'm trying to understand how a worm remembers a temperature. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, I'll be talking about, in the 250th episode, I'll be talking about emergency management with Jeff Schlegelmilch from Columbia University and Samantha Montano. And Alex Goldstein of Faces of COVID will join me tomorrow as well. I want to thank my guest today for a wide-ranging, really fascinating conversation and for giving me so much time today. Daniel Colon-Ramos, thanks for all you're doing and for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 530.